New, new, new black, new, new black Wall Street book club. Evan Jefferson, brother, much love. Educating, elevating, because in knowledge is the power and we'll never give it up. <laughs> Literature is for the masses. Where to put your money down the how to watch your assets. Yeah, uplifting others is a passion. My brother Evan, he will turn it into action. New Black Wall Street Book Club. You should come read with come us. Read with us. Yeah, we comprehend and discuss. Yeah. If we all just come together, there's no limit for there's us. No limit for us. <laughs> Here comes your host, New Black Wall Street. Evan, take it away. New Black Wall Street Book Club. Welcome to the New Black Wall Street Book Club, where black folk do read. If you put it in a book, we absolutely will find it. I'm your host, ERGJ, your certified financial educator, CEO of ERGJ Enterprises, ERGJ Black Bazaar, and international best selling author of the book. The Black Billionaires Club. It's a study of black wealth. It's a study of the 12 richest black people in the world today and how they built their wealth. And I just believe that if you want to be wealthy, you should study wealthy people. We can find that book by going to the website www.theblackbillionairesclub.com www.theblackbillionairesclub.com You'll find that link in the description above or below. In today's episode of the New Black Wall Street Book Club, we continue along in our journey into the book, What Makes the Great Great? Strategies for Extraordinary Achievement by Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough. What Makes the Great Great? Strategies for Extraordinary Achievement by Mr. Dennis Kimbrough. Chapter 2. The greatest question, what does it take? In this chapter, we'll cover the price of success, the four basic fears, the eight steps to greater courage, and what does it take? Here are three quotes for you. Pericles, the secret of happiness is freedom, and the secret of freedom is courage. Maggie L. Walker, you can either stand up and be counted, out, counted or lie down and be counted out. Ephesians 6.13 Having done all, stand. What does it take? No one can ask a greater question. Four simple words that stand between you and your moment of decision. If you dare to accomplish anything in this world, if you aspire to the Creator's grand scheme, if your very existence depends upon it, and if you are willing to give up your time, money, and effort for it, then you must confront the internal question that stands up and looks every would-be achiever in the eye. What does it take? If you dare to walk through the gates of achievement, you must answer this question. It is the, very, it is the way every great success has been won. You don't believe that prestigious writers, acclaimed artists, revered businessmen, and women were born with the ability to write or paint or lead countless others. Do you? Do you think each possessed the latest books or sat before the most rigorous instructors on language, the arts, or finance? On the contrary, their only assets were backbone, shoe leather, and a moral courage best captured by the words of Mary McLeod Bethune, the great educator who, as she faced her foes, gazed upward and said, Here I stand. Father, help me. 
If an individual wants to accomplish anything in this world, he or she must be must not be afraid of running the risk of assuming the responsibilities. Of course, it takes courage to face the possibility of failure, to be subjected to criticism for an unpopular cause, to expose oneself to the shafts of ridicule. But the man or woman who is not true to himself or herself, who cannot carry out the sealed orders placed in his hand at birth, who does not possess the courage to trace the pattern of his own destiny, which no other soul but his own can do, will never know the measure of his own greatness. Walk the walk. All the world loves courage, but how we shrink from courageous acts of our own. We live as others live. We dress as others dress. We conduct our affairs in the manner of other men and women. What does greatness require? It requires the courage not to bend the knee to popular opinion. It calls for courage to refuse to follow customs and rights that run contrary to our own sense of morality. The child who starts out by being afraid to speak what he thinks will usually end by being afraid to think what he wishes. Much of today's unhappiness rests with, it, with weaknesses and indecision. In other words, the lack of courage to stand on your own, to be uncommon within the crowd of conformity. On the walls of the Million Dollar Roundtable can be found the following creed composed by Dean Alphonse, Cornell University trained scholar and businessman. It is not my right to be common if I can. I seek opportunity, not security. I want to take the calculated risk, to dream and to build, to fail and to succeed. I refuse to barter incentive for a dole. I prefer the challenges of life to the guaranteed existence, the thrill of fulfillment to the stale calm of utopia. I will not trade freedom for benefits nor my dignity for a handout. I'll never cower before any master nor bend to any threat. It is my heritage to stand erect, proud and unafraid, to think and act for myself, enjoy the benefit of my creations and to face the world boldly and say, this I have done. And this is what it means to be an American. I do not choose to be common. What a new face courage puts on everything, Emerson wrote. Winston, Ch Winston Churchill agreed. Courage is the finest quality, Churchill explained, because it guarantees all the others. No truer statement was ever written. Wherever it appears, courage changes things for the better. Sometimes it's the courage to be silent when a word or phrase comes to mind. It's often the courage to get up on a cold, miserable morning when it's the last thing in the world you want to do. It's the courage to do what needs to be done when it should be done. And it's the courage to follow the silent voice within when it means going against the crowd, standing up for that which you believe is right. It's the courage to stay with something long enough to succeed. Don't lament or grieve over lost wealth or opportunity. Many an individual has only found himself after he has lost his all. Fear stripped him only to allow him to discover himself. You must toss away the crutches of comfort and stand upon your own two feet and develop the long, unused muscles of boldness and daring. Within you, God may see a diamond in the rough, which only the hard hits of courage can polish. 
execute your resolutions immediately. Does competition trouble you? If so, continue to work. Is your competition an individual? Conquer your place in the world for all things serve a brave soul. Combat difficulty bravely. Sustain misfortune gallantly. Endure poverty nobly and encounter disappointment courageously. Imagine that you came across a wooden board that measured 12 feet long, 12 inches wide, and 4 inches thick. You have little difficulty walking from one end of the plank to the other. But if I stretch that same board between two buildings 200 feet tall with nothing but the hustle and bustle of the city traffic below, could you summon the courage to walk the same board? Just think, same board, same distance, but a new element is introduced. One that alters your mental attitude considerably. And that element is fear. The fear of what could happen. The fear of what might happen holds us back and keeps us in check. We permit ourselves to fail by default rather than run the risk of failing as a result of having made the effort to succeed. It's not important that we walk the length of the plank whether it's on the ground or suspended in the air. But how many things are there at which we succeed that we could succeed at a much larger scale? It's all a mental game that we picture in our minds. It's here, in our mind, not in actual practice where we win or lose. As you read the following stories, I hope that you will find the courage to take risks, to fight through life's disasters, and to discover the strength that lies within you beyond the reach of fear. The Price of Success Society seldom hears of the failures of high achievers, perhaps because it wants to think of these men and women in terms of success, not failure. On the other hand, many peak performers often avoid talking about or dwelling on their setbacks. Sometimes their setbacks are too painful to reflect upon. But occasionally, some will expand upon their failures long enough for others to learn practical lessons from their experiences. As it turns out, the clear-cut assessment of many successful individuals anchors around setbacks and rejection. Make no mistake about it. Victories that come easy are cheap. Achievement owes its growth to the striving of the will, the encounter with fear, the ever-present danger of failure. Who He who has never failed has never succeeded. By 1983, Michael Hollis, a brilliant young black attorney, calculated his chances for success. It helped that he had a distinctive resume and a working relation with some of the nation's most powerful movers and shakers. But he possessed something far more important, a personal knowledge of what was truly possible. Hollis's brainchild, Air Atlanta, took center stage when he stepped boldly to the front and shared his vision. It's my hope that we can build an airline to service a great multitude of business travelers. What was it that prompted Hollis to leap into the industry at a time when many carriers were filing for bankruptcy? I took one look at Atlanta's Hartsfield Airport and saw opportunity, Hollis stated. Sure, on the surface, it was a risky move, but I've never been one to bow down to a prospect's possible failure. Given my appreciation for mass transportation and the fact that no airline catered exclusively to the business traveler, it was a chance that I had to take. He knew that launching an airline would be an extraordinarily difficult feat. 
Even without the obvious and prohibitive problems of timing and financing, the technical and managerial challenges alone would be staggering. After all, the public had already witnessed the death of Braniff Airlines and the near collapse of Eastern and Continental. Nonetheless, Hollis watched undeterred. Airliner would be a testimony to its founders' ambition and talent. Hollis was not the first black to take to the skies. When Warren Wheeler was in his teens, an older sister coaxed him into his first airplane ride. He was immediately skystruck. Driven by his love of flying, Wheeler became president and principal stockholder of Piedmont Airlines, the nation's first black-owned, regularly scheduled airline. It was a small operation with a fleet of 11 single and twin engine props that flew to small North Carolina coastal communities. Wheeler launched his flying service in 1969 on savings and a shoestring. For nearly four years, his business floundered until a regional commission sought to expand operations to several seaboard counties. By 1973, Wheeler's company was up and flying, grossing more than $1 million in profits that year. House was empowered by Wheeler's accomplishments, so much so that he too laid plans to blast forward. He was barely 27 and some people thought he was flying too high. But for all his innocence, he would continue to focus on his goals. I remember the criticism I received for such a lofty goal, Hollis recalled, but I knew anything was possible. A quick word from our sponsor. If I were you, I would stand for something. Michael Hollis attended Dartmouth College and the University of Virginia, where he captured honors and a law degree. At both institutions, he cut a path that led to unique experiences. He put the finishing touches on his scholastic career by presiding over 30, the 30,000 member student law section of the American Bar Association, the first black ever to do so. Hollis later joined Oppenheimer and Company, a Wall Street investment firm where he became a vice president at 26 and one of the youngest ever. The fact that the youngest child of a Pullman porter and a social worker had come this far was the direct result of an act of faith that Hollis acquired from his parents and mostly from his mentor, the late Dr. Benjamin Mays, former president of Morehouse College, who counseled, if I were you, I stand for something. On the surface, there appeared to be no way he could prevail with the airline. With no industry experience or capital and Starting up during an, an industry-wide recession, Haas invaded the turf rule by Delta and Eastern, two carriers that controlled more than 90% of the market in the nation's second busiest airport, and bore straight ahead. He fir his first task was to assemble a management team that could, would include seasoned airline veterans. He picked the pockets of Pan Am and, uh, and American Airlines, supplying his organization with decades of airline experience. While his team developed most of the marketing operating strategies, House was free to concentrate on his forte, raising money. He flipped through his Rolodex, which displayed the names and addresses of the most influential men and women in corporate America. He also called upon Atlanta mayor and close friend Maynard Jackson. Jackson provided him with an entree of the National Alliance of Postal and Federal Employees, the country's largest black industrial union. Convinced with the soundness of House's idea, uh, NAPFE invested $1 million of seed capital. This cash infusion gave Haas the breathing room to piece together a comprehensive business plan, a tool that would attract the millions of dollars he would eventually need to get Air Atlanta up and running. 
has continued his pilgrimage and won financial commitments from the bluest of blue chip investors. All told, the airline had been funded with $90 million, monies that had never been monies that had never before been equaled in black business history. It really looked as if we could turn the cor- we had turned the corner, said Hollis cheerful, crisp, and openly excited. But this is a tough business. And contrary to the appearance of things, failure dictates the need, the, a need to exercise caution. Hollis figured he could create a sizable market niche by going against the grain and attracting the high-end business traveler. Moreover, he would lure prospective customers by offering super frills at coach fairs. His tactic ran counter to the industry's, industry's trend. No frills, airline startups, such as People Express, initiated fare wars to lure price-conscious leisure travelers especially those who don't mind cramped quarters while toting their own luggage. Instead, Air Atlanta focused on luxury and positioned itself as the airline born to serve business. The Wings of Icarus On paper, It appeared as if Hollis could actually pull it off, but his entrepreneurial overreach did appear, and his dream began to unravel. Air Atlanta's need for capital caused hemorrhaging throughout the organization. Though the airline was funded with $90 million, it was ill-prepared for the capital demands of a deregulated airline industry. From the beginning, the company had to contend with an erratic cash flow. We never had enough money, Hollis stated privately. Privately. We never, we were never capitalized for more than two months at a time. What had prevented the airline from dissolving earlier was Hollis's ability to secure additional financing again and again. But this hand-to-mouth existence had two effects on his firm. First, the company had to make moves to generate cash for the near term, reducing the airline's prospects for long-term revenues. And second, it gave investors enormous power over the founder. In the winter of 1985, with Air Atlanta desperately needing Equitable Life's $5 million cash infusion, the insurance giant prodded Hollis to hire former airline's executive Harry A. Kimbrell. Kimbrell has spent the past two years acting as an advisor to a federal bankruptcy judge and proceedings involving Continental Airlines. Not only was Continental revived and its creditors paid in full, but Continental became so solvent that, it, that its parent company, the Texas Air Corporation, was able to purchase Eastern Airlines making Texas Air the nation's largest airline holding company. It was during the continental proceeding that Equitable, which had been a creditor in the case, got its first look at Kimbrough. Weary of airliners' lackluster performance, Equitable encouraged Hollis to hire Kimbrough as a consultant. Hollis was convinced that he wouldn't get the badly needed funding from Equitable unless he hired Kimbrough, and he agreed. It was clear that relations between the two men were rocky from the start. Kimbrell was widely seen as, been, as having been hired to turn the airline around, a perception that never sat well with Hollis. I conceived Air Atlanta. I built it. I'm going to run it, an indignant Hollis told a staffer. To make matters worse, their differences didn't escape the notice of employees, some of whom began taking sides, further straining relations. In such an atmosphere, supporters of Hollis began circumventing Kimbrell in the chain of command, seeking directors from Hollis, Supporters of Kimbrough, in turn, met with the founder and asked him to step aside as chief executive officer and let Kimbrough take the reins. A petition was circulated and signed by more than one-third of the company's employees challenging Hollis's leadership. In an effort to gain control of the airlines, Hollis fired Kimbrough 
an act that ended internal dissension, but also precluded further investment from the equitable-led group. At least we tried. In March 1986, Air Atlanta encountered rough air. The company faced a $55 million debt in a fit of frenzy and trying to stave off bankruptcy proceedings, Hollis raised $18 million by selling five of its aircraft to Federal Express. Unfortunately, this proved to be too little too late. Potential investors saw him as a desperate man and withdrew their offers, while once faithful backers began to call in their notes. Consequently, three years of effort and hope came to a screeching halt. Heartbroken, a young entrepreneur with high-flung dreams brooded over his loss. The problem was simple. The airline wasn't large enough. We managed only eight planes at 60% capacity. It cost us damn near every dime, but at least we tried. What went wrong? Everything was so carefully planned. All the details were meticulously mapped out. Such a major commitment of main power and financial resources supported by some of the best management talent. How could this have happened? As with most business ventures, there is no one simple answer to why the airline failed. The marketplace is complex. Many things contributed to the demise of Air Atlanta, among them poor judgment and volatile egos. Immersed in the brutality competitive world of air travel, Hollis remained oblivious to the tensions and disappointments around him. But Hollis uncovered the central lesson of life, that failure is neither tragedy nor humiliation. Those who have dared have moved the world. The courageous provide an example of the intrepid. Their influence is magnetic. People follow them even to their graves. And as Hollis's mentor, Benjamin Mays, was noted to say on occasion, it must be borne in mind that failure to reach your goal is not tragic. The tragedy lies in not having a goal to reach. Nothing is more tragic than encountering a person who believes that his or her life has no meaning, that he or she has no contribution to make. Deep down, we all want to know that our lives do make a difference. Though finding a passion is a prelude to finding our purpose, it is the, it is the spirit of courage that will transform your life. Courage alone will unlock the gate that leads to the secret power that is stored within you. This is the new Black Wall Street Book Club, where black folk do read. If you put in a book, we absolutely will find it. And I'm your host, ERGJ, your certified financial educator, and we invite you to join the Black Billionaires Club. Get connected with brothers and sisters who are serious about winning with money, serious about success, and super serious about helping you to accomplish your goals and to build your dreams. Check out the website at www.theblackbillionairesclub.com, www.theblackbillionairesclub.com. You can find that link in the description above or below. Make a decision to change the rest of your life. We'd ask that you would subscribe and support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes to improve financial literacy within our community and ultimately to help us to build the School of Wealth. To build an institution that will teach the next generation about money and your small monthly contribution can make all the difference. Well, says, well, we want to say thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the New Black Wall Street Book Club. We want you to remember this. 
that it takes a village and it starts with us. Let's build as we climb together. We all we got people and thank God that that's more than enough. Until next episode, you know what time it is. Mr. DJ, hit the music. New, new, new black, new. It's the new black Wall Street book club. Wall Street. <laughs> With your host, Evan Jefferson. Evan Jefferson. It's time for us to go. Yeah. Now you ain't got a little computer, but we encourage you to get out there and learn and apply all the things you learn at the new black Wall Street. Book club, book club. <laughs> yeah.